Thank you for joining our webinar today on the COVID-19 News You Need from Chess 2020. My name is Stephanie Levine. I'm the immediate past president of CHEST and a professor of medicine at UT Health San Antonio and the South Texas VA Health System. And I'll be your moderator today. Today's webinar will center on a discussion on highlights, key takeaways, and important insights from the multiple COVID-19 presentations that were held at CHESS 2020. We have several questions that we didn't get to address after Dr. Fauci's keynote opening address, and we thought that we would start off with some of those. But with COVID-19 on the rise in most states in the US and worldwide, we welcome you to submit any questions you have in relation to COVID-19. We will also be addressing the questions that you submitted when you signed up for the webinar. So please welcome our expert panel. CHESS President, Dr. Steve Simpson, COVID-19 Task Force Chair, Dr. Ryan Maves, Live Learning Subcommittee Chair, Dr. Mangala Narasimhan, Vice Chair of the CHESS Infections Network, Dr. Holly Keat, and a member of the CHESS COVID-19 Task Force, Dr. Niha Dangayachi. Dr. Simpson is a professor at Kansas University Medical Center and is a member of the NIH COVID Treatment Guideline Panel. Dr. Maves is a critical care and infectious disease specialist at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. He is also the current vice chair of the Disaster Response and Global Health Network. Dr. Narasimhan is a director of critical care services at Northwell Health System and a professor at North Shore University Hospital in New York. Dr. Keith is an associate professor of medicine at UT Health San Antonio and is the medical director of the adult cystic fibrosis program and is a transplant pulmonologist. Dr. Dangiak is an assistant professor in the departments of neurosurgery and neurology, the director of the neurocritical care fellowship and the co-director of the neurosciences ICU at Mount Sinai Health System in New York. So with that, I think we'll go on, we'll move on to our, our first question. I'd like to address that to Steve. Steve, can you comment on why we um, are, are seeing um, some of the disparities in, in um, who is affected by COVID-19? Yeah, I, I think that probably most everyone understands by now that, that there is a difference in outcomes and a difference in who's been hit by this disease with uh, large numbers of large numbers <laughs> of um, African-American and Hispanic individuals being uh, affected. And, and so the question is why is, is that happening? And is it actually uh, a racial issue or is it more of an access to healthcare issue? And I think by and large, the, the leading the thought leaders in this area would say that really we have health disparities because of access to uh, to health services across the board. And our African-American, in truth, our African-American 
population, our Native American population, our Hispanic population, and, and numerous other uh, facets, smaller facets, a uh, uh, smaller minority, so to speak, have had access to healthcare issues all along, which has affected basic underlying health. So we, we also noticed that you are more prone to this disease and more prone to doing poorly with this disease if you have chronic heart issues, chronic lung issues, diabetes, hypertension, and all sorts of things that arise from not being able to have adequate health care at the right time. And, and so there's a definite overlap between uh, our minority individuals who are suffering from this uh, illness and our minority individuals who haven't had health care and have some of those underlying diseases. Thank you. Ryan, we have several questions regarding vaccine efficacy. How effective would a vaccine need to be considered adequate and why? And are there relative advantages of some of the different vaccine platforms? Yeah, and that's a, it's a great question. The, the FDA has set a threshold of 50% vaccine efficacy, um, which on one hand doesn't sound great, but on the other hand would be a really good year for influenza vaccination right, a 50% efficacy. And I think along with that 50% efficacy, one would also hope to see an attenuated response to infection in people who still did manage to get infected uh, despite vaccination. Uh, and that is really what we see with the public health impact of influenza vaccination, where even though on, on bad years, you may have only 30, perhaps 40% efficacy, the reduction in severity in vaccinated individuals and the reduction in transmission uh, due to those reductions uh, has a, a benefit that goes beyond just the individual benefit of influenza vaccination. And I think thinking of you know, potentially many of us who are probably relatively low risk for both severe COVID and severe influenza, you know, I don't get vaccinated for flu because of myself. I get vaccinated for flu because I'm a, I'm a vector. And, and the objective of that is to block transmission to others. I presume the same is true of COVID. Uh, in terms of, you know, obviously we would like higher efficacy, uh, we would like greater amounts of protection, but that 50% floor is really based on some level on modeling from influenza. Uh, now, these trials are all still in phase three. Some are very close to completing enrollment, though. Um, and hopefully, we'll get better ideas of if we've achieved, if one or more of these agents has achieved 50% efficacy. As far as the different platforms, and this is one of the interesting things, we've seen a lot of um, novel, or at least if not novel, <clears throat> uh, kind of niche vaccine platforms now come to the forefront. Uh, previously niche platforms come to the forefront. So one of the ideas here, I think when you read about COVID immunity, a lot of us focus a lot on antibody titers and the amount of antibodies. And there's been a great deal of attention both in the medical press and in the popular press about how uh, levels of IgG, IgA decline potentially rapidly over time in people who've received COVID. But a lot of these methods really neglect the role of cell-mediated immunity, of T cells in our protection against respiratory viruses. And so a lot of these newer vaccine platforms do is they're finding ways to induce cell-mediated immunity in addition to humoral antibody-based immunity. 
Traditionally, the only way we've really been able to induce cell-mediated immunity with a vaccine is having an attenuated live virus. So, in fact, the first vaccine, smallpox, is an example of that. Uh, and more contemporary vaccines, things like measles, things like yellow fever, mumps, rubella, these are all live virus vaccines that are in common use, varicella. The problem with all of those vaccines is that a live virus does put does introduce an element of risk to the immunocompromised, uh, less immunologically robust members of our society who are also the ones at the greatest risk of getting severe COVID. And so is there a way to get around that problem? Of, and that's what a lot of these new platforms are. So for example, the um, AstraZeneca University of Oxford product, the uh, chimpanzee adenovirus vector, is a replication incompetent virus. So it can infect, induce cell-mediated immunity, have antigen presentation to T cells and so forth, introduce that arm of the immune response, but it can't replicate in a host. So the hope, the hope, this still needs to be validated obviously in phase three, is that this is something that could be given safely to higher risk individuals that you may not have been able to do if it was a straight up old fashioned live virus like the yellow fever vaccine. Um, another example of one of these platforms is the Moderna mRNA vaccine. And that's not the only mRNA vaccine trial in development, but it's the one that's furthest along. The idea with mRNA vaccines is that you introduce a segment of viral mRNA that encodes, in this case, for the coronavirus S protein, the spike protein that leads, binds to the ACE receptor and then leads to penetration into human cells. So instead of inoculating you with a you know, with the antigen or with a virus that manifests that epitope, uh, you inject mRNA taken up into your own skeletal cells, into your own, not skeletal cells, I'm sorry, into your own skeletal muscle cells, into your own myocytes, which then will start to pump out S protein with antigen presentation along the same side. So there's no live organism in this, but you're inducing both a humoral and a cell-mediated response. So it's an interesting way around that problem. Now, there haven't been any licensed mRNA vaccines, but there, are, um, there have been a number that have been fairly far in development. Obviously, the Navy was involved in a dengue mRNA vaccine candidate some time ago. Uh, their mRNA vaccine candidates for Zika uh, came pretty far along before Zika kind of went away, uh, or at least from popular consciousness. Um, so yeah, so there are a lot of, and there are a number of other novel platforms. Uh, and for those of you who uh, were able to uh, attend CHEST this year, uh, Dr. Julie Ake, Colonel Julie Ake, uh, who's the director of the military's HIV research program, gives a very nice overview of these vaccine technologies. And if you're interested in it, you should watch Dr. Ake's talk because it's great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Ryan. Just a quick follow-up that came up in the chat. How long would you say uh, uh, the vaccine should be in trial before it's safe for the public? Boy, hard um, question. I know that is a tricky one. I think that it would be nice to at least get a few months worth of data. I need to admit a small, not conflict. I am a site investigator for the uh, for the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, and so I, I am not receiving any compensation for that. But uh, I am involved in that trial. Uh, I'll probably be about number three hundred or so on the paper. But the um, but I think a lot of these studies are going to be doing interim analyses about three months in. Um, that is not long enough, I think, to really establish, you know, how often do people need boosters? Uh, is it going to be an every year thing like influenza, which I think would be actually a, a really good outcome? Um, 
Oh, that was a question also. So great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think right now we just, we don't know, right? This is the fastest time we've rolled out va multiple vaccine products in, in such a short period of time. I mean, I think the previous record is what, four years for mumps in the 1950s. Uh, and that was breath fast. So uh, the fact that we are that these these products are coming to phase three trials so very quickly, uh, the research isn't going to end. These are these phase three trials, even though one or more may achieve emergency use authorization or even FDA approval after only a few months of of uh, of study. Uh, there is a very good possibility, not very good possibility. I should rephrase that. These trials are two year trials at least, right? So these patients, these uh, volunteers who've given given their time. Uh, to be enrolled in these studies will be on trial for 24 months at least uh, to get a better handle on the kinetics of their immunity. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it, there were a lot of um, thrombosis-related sessions at CHAST, and there are several questions regarding um, how you manage anticoagulation, knowing that this, this virus predisposes uh, the patient to thrombosis. Can you comment on that? Yeah, there was uh, some great sessions at Chest. You're right. So I'll, I'll put a plug to, to take a listen to those, but I'll try to summarize in just a couple of minutes what they spent, you know, a few hours talking about. Um, it's impressive that, you know, just since COVID has been on the scene in the last 10 months, there's more than a thousand papers published about thrombosis and COVID and more than 200 review articles so far just over the last few months. So there's a lot of information out there. Um, the moral of the story is that it does seem like the risk of thrombosis is higher in COVID than in some other viral infections, as much as about 30% in ICU patients or about 10 to 15% in floor patients. Um, will have some sort of venous thrombosis. As well, there seems to be an increased risk of arterial thromboses, which can have a variety of manifestations from limb um, arteries to coronary arteries to cerebral arteries, and even the great vessels have been reported to have uh, thrombotic complications. And so it's, a, it's an active question to what to do about all of these thrombosis and uh, how to look for them. And so a couple of papers have looked at, should we be screening everybody? Should we just be screening patients who are symptomatic? And it seems like the consensus is really falling down on, we should be doing our usual standard uh, critical care management. We should be looking for thromboses in patients who have evidence of a clinical manifestation and not necessarily screening everybody. You know, every time we send someone into the room of someone who's actively infected, that increases the risk of possible viral transmission to the staff members. And so we should, um, at, early on, I think some people were just screening every single patient that came in, but maybe that's not the right approach. And it, that's kind of being looked at now. And then in terms of um, why does this happen? Well, there seem to be a, a variety of different potential pathophysiologic mechanisms from hyperviscosity. They seem to have these platelet-rich thrombi. There's been even some suggestion of lupus anticoagulant and impaired fibrinolysis. And then there's some vasculitis-like features, as well as uh, there was a study just published earlier this month that showed an ABO linkage in association with a disease severity. And it seems like patients who have, or blood group A seem to have a higher risk. Um, so there's a lot that we don't know and that we're gonna continue to learn about this. But for right now, um, the ACCP has actually put out guidelines in terms of how should we be looking for this and then how should we be managing it. And so the moral of the story is have a high level of suspicion. If you see something that looks like it could be consistent with a thrombosis, do the test and, and find out if it's there. And then um, to the question of D-dimer, because that's come up a lot, um, 
and there really, again, is not enough evidence to say that we should be using D-dimer to guide our clinical practice, but it's something that we can look at because it, there is very clearly an association with higher D-dimer and higher mortality. And so something to factor into your clinical decision-making. Now, coming to should we be prophylaxing and how should we be dosing anticoagulation for prophylaxis? In general, most of the patients that we take care of in the ICU and on the floor who have COVID will meet criteria for standard thromboprophylaxis. And so we should be using agents that we would normally use in the doses that we normally would based on their other comorbidities. So if they have renal dysfunction, um, Lovenox is not gonna be an option as much as heparin. Um, and then in terms of the dosing regimen, again, really we should just be doing what we know works and what has been shown to work in the past. So standard dosing res regimens. Um, and then for people who do have evidence of a DVT or a PE, we should be treating it again based on their other comorbidities and the medications that they tolerate and continuing it for three months after just as our, as our usual practice. Thank you. Amongo, you were on the front lines at the very beginning and now again, you're seeing a surge. Can you comment on the mortality trends that you have observed? Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. And there's been a lot of discussion about this in the press recently. Um, so the mortality when we started seeing patients was extremely high. I think in, of intubated patients, um, it was around 65 or 68% mortality in New York uh, during the first surge. And the papers that have come out recently, both from NYU and from England, um, have shown a decrease in that mortality and very nicely have shown a decrease as time goes by, by 10% a month or so. Um, of mortality in ICU patients. So why is that is the question and what has changed? I think that we have gotten um, used to taking care of critically ill patients with COVID and that's a big part of it. I think our health systems are not overwhelmed. I mean, when, when the New York surge happened, we had patients being taken care of in all kinds of settings and environments and by people who are not critical care doctors, you know, taking care of 20 and 25 critically ill ARDS patients. So the health system being overwhelmed, I think is a huge uh, play in this. And now we have one ICU with COVID patients where our critical care doctors are taking care of them. So that makes a big difference. Um, our ERs are not overwhelmed. We're able to triage patients better. We're using a lot more non-invasive ventilation um, prior to having to intubate people or not having to intubate people. So, and, and I think in terms of treatment, we've at least got some consistency in what we're doing. When the March and April pandemic started, you know, we were using tocilizumab and we were using an IL-1 and we were using, uh, some people were using ivermectin and some people were using, you know, there were all these anecdotal reports in the internet of how much PEEP to use and what to do. And people were very confused and, and time has sort of settled things out. And there's been some very good studies that have come out that have helped us decide what is best treatment. While we don't have perfect treatments, I think we have at least consistency in what we're doing. And um, that has changed things a lot too. And, and we're not um, jumping at everything that comes to, you know, our way through the internet. So I think all of these factors together play a part in what's happening. I also think there's a little bit of a change in the patient population that we were seeing a lot of elderly patients when the first round of events happened in March and April. People now are wearing masks, the elderly are staying home and, and practicing social distancing and are really changed their behavior patterns significantly. So the people we're seeing now are a different patient population. Um, and I, and there is, there's a theory that wearing masks and having reduced viral load 
um, changes the severity of disease. Uh, so that may play a part in it. I don't think that's really been totally confirmed yet, but the less viral load you get when you get sick, uh, that seems to play a, a, an impact on the severity of what you get. And finally, there are some reports and none of this has really been verified that the virus is a little bit different and it has mutated. I haven't really seen that. I think the patients who do get to the ICU are still as sick as they are, they were back in March and April. There's just much less of them. And we've been able to keep them out of the ICU um, and, and on other treatment modalities and other places in the hospital. So I think all of these things together have played a big impact on mortality. And I, I hope we continue to, to improve it. It's still much higher than the flu and it's still something to be worried about. Um, and it still has a huge uh, mortality as compared to other diseases, but I think it's a little bit different in the way that we're approaching them and the number of patients that we have. Thank you. And Neha, one of your interests is in long COVID. There were also several sessions on, on that at, at CHESS 2020. Could you expand a little bit upon that? Absolutely. And of course, Chest had a fantastic session uh, moderated by Wes Ely and Oluka Hope and Rana Avdesh. So I'd, I'd uh, ask everybody to take a listen to that. And uh, in terms of what long COVID really is, how long is long, I think uh, for us to be able to understand and get our uh, wrap our heads around the duration of symptoms, it it might be worthwhile classifying patients into those who are not sick enough to be hospitalized. So those patients who are self-monitoring their symptoms, then there's a, there's a category of patients who will get hospitalized, but they're not sick enough to come to our ICUs. Then there are those five to 10% patients who are going to get critically ill who will be in our ICUs. And as we're longitudinally monitoring these different categories of patients, I think we're seeing um, two different flavors. One is persistent symptoms, which are very similar in some ways to some prior post-viral syndromes that we have seen, for example, a post-EBV syndrome or um, a myalgia encephalomyelitis-like uh, syndrome that has been described after different viral infections uh, like Q fever, etc. But how is, how is long COVID really different? So in that patient population that did not have very severe symptoms from COVID-19 and are self-monitoring their symptoms at home, um, a UK-based study reports that almost 60% um, of these patients are reporting symptoms all the way out to eight weeks or so from their first symptom. Uh, there's also another longitudinal study, again, out of the UK that's really going to monitor these patients whether they were PUIs, whether they got a confirmatory test or not. And I think that's going to help shed light on some of those patients who self-monitored uh, their symptoms. Out of Mount Sinai, we have our precision recovery program that's also enrolled about 1,000 patients. And what they're describing is very similar to what we've seen from other reports in literature, where this brain fog, fatigue, difficulty in thinking, concentrating, GI symptoms, shortness of breath, uh, just muscle aches, generalized weakness. So these are some symptoms that are ongoing. And then um, for patients who have been hospitalized, again, out of the UK, there's a longitudinal study, uh, the FOSS uh, COVID study that will shed some more light on this. Then for the ICU patients, uh, we've known even in the pre-COVID-19 era that post-intensive care syndrome is a public health problem. We know that anywhere between 
40 to 70% of patients are going to suffer from a problem in one of these different domains, the physical domain or the cognitive domain, behavioral domain, is the burden of post-intensive care syndrome going to be much bigger in our COVID-19 patients? So uh, during um, Dr. Wes Ely's session, it was pointed out that perhaps this uh, F-COVID, the lack of family presence, or I, this feeling of isolation, problems with oxygenation, clotting, all the medications that we're using, uh, that's definitely going to be a bigger burden. This uh, D-COVID study or the delirium COVID study uh, that again comes out from the same, same group, uh, again, an international study that enrolled more than 2,000 patients. Again, what they're seeing what is different different about the delirium that's happening with COVID-19, which is a known risk factor for post-intensive care syndrome, more than 80% of these patients received benzos for a prolonged period of time, so for more than seven days or so. So we know that a lot of the things that we had made progress in, in preventing post-intensive care syndrome using the A2F bundle, the adaptations to that bundle have been very difficult for several hospitals and health systems, particularly like Mangla said earlier in the pandemic, we didn't know exactly what we were dealing with. And as uh, studies out of the UK um, are point, pointing out um, that overall mortality is getting better, we do anticipate that outcomes for patients will also be better later uh, in the pandemic as compared to earlier in the pandemic. But this global collaboration for monitoring these patients longitudinally leveraging the existing networks of post-ICU clinics. And there are several hospitals and health systems in the UK, in Italy, in India, uh, in the United States that now have special COVID-19 centers or COVID-19 clinics, uh, really trying to coordinate the care for patients who have pre-existing disease and that they got COVID-19. And then how do, we, how do we track all of these different symptoms and what does it really mean? From a pathophysiological standpoint, it's hard to know whether this is because of reactivation of the virus. Is it because there's a dysregulated immune response? Um, is it because of uh, a compounded effect of the disease itself or and the treatments that we have administered? Um, so all of that is going to be difficult to tease out. Uh, but the most important thing that, um, that I heard uh, during several sessions in chest is this collaborative approach that we've got to pool our data and follow these patients longitudinally. Uh, lots of press on how patients are feeling like their symptoms are not being taken seriously or people are being told this is all in your head. Uh, I think we have to be very mindful of doing that and uh, addressing the needs of these patients appropriately till we completely understand what we're dealing with. Thank you. Steve, can you comment on the role of public health officials and public officials to assist healthcare professionals during the pandemic? Yeah, I will, I will try and do that. The not everyone knows probably that are that is viewing that I I work half of my time in the Department of Health and Human Services myself. So so I'm not going to give you any government spiel, but I, but I want you to understand that that our public health officials, uh, they function in a couple of different ways, uh, whether it's at the local level, the county level, the state level, or the federal level, you have 
afferent limbs and you have efferent limbs. And, and we've seen a little bit of a, a bit of topsy-turvy here with the afferent and the efferent during this COVID outbreak. For example, one might not normally turn to the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease to be your efferent limb, to be the person who's putting out the public health information, but this is the way that it's worked out. Normally, we would expect the Centers for Disease Control to be both afferent, gathering data from what's going on in the communities, and efferent, synthesizing that data. And, and what happens, though, is there's a thing called policy that gets in the way here um, a little bit. And, and policy takes the afferent data makes it into this is how the government's going to behave and then spreads that back down through the government. And that also happens locally, statewide and federally. So this is, this is all going on at once. What I want to say though is, is yes, there are some politics involved in how policy is set. No question, we can all see this, but my experience with the federal government, my experience working with our current state, uh, um, oh, the, the right word isn't Surgeon General, but he's the director of our state health agency and, and uh, our county health officials, all up and down the line, there are thousands and thousands of dedicated people who are here looking to form a scientific approach based on data that makes sense. And that is their job. And that's what they're all there for. And there are lots and lots and lots of them. And I play a teensy tiny little role in the federal government contributing some critical care expertise to an overall plan to help get better testing and get vaccines and get potentially therapeutic agents. But, but, I think that that's the key thing. Your public health officials are not there to lie to us. They are not there to set a political agenda. They're there to scientifically interpret the data that's coming and uh, to give us scientifically based information that helps us make our clinical decisions and our personal decisions. And I think that's what I'll say. Thanks. Ryan, um, early on, we were certainly worried about co viral co-infection. And now that we're heading into the winter in, in our hemisphere, that question's coming up again. Um, so should flu and COVID patients be isolated from each other in different units? Or is it okay to isolate them in separate rooms in, in the same isolation unit? That's a question that came up oh. on our a live Q&A. And then um, your prediction on, on given mask wearing, what, what we'll see in terms of influenza this season. Yeah. Um, in terms of isolation, I think that in general patients, it would be very challenging to cohort influenza and COVID patients together. And in general, I know that in times of crisis, we've had you know, perhaps two COVID patients together in an ICU and so forth. I think when you int introduce influenza into the mix, there is at least some observational data that there is a, a synergistic potential for harm. And, uh, and I would try, certainly try, assuming that we haven't moved into crisis standards of care or something like that, to 
do our best to make sure that flu and COVID stays apart from each other, not together. Uh, in terms of, and that's a that's the former infection control chair speaking. The um, when it comes to um, you know, kind of the clinical implications of that. Right now, CDC and the NIH uh, COVID guidelines are recommending that our use of oseltamivir for COVID influenza co-infected patients should essentially be the same as our normal oseltamivir uh, indications, right? So patients at risk for severe influence and so forth. Um, I would say that probably if someone, when I identify someone with COVID and influenza at the same time, I suspect my personal threshold for starting um, oseltamivir may be a, a touch lower than it normally is. Um, and I suspect that my, my threshold for admission is going to be a little bit lower than it normally is. Um, but right now, until we have better data, knowing what is the actual impact of these, uh, these co-infections on a larger scale, I think we have to stick with conventional guidelines for treatment. Uh, and also conventional guidelines for hospital infection control. Um, and I would try to minimize cohorting to the extent possible based on the surge. Yeah, as far as what masking is going to do to influenza, this came up in uh, in our session at the at the live meeting. And one, you know, one of the interesting observations was that the local surges in the Southern hemisphere uh, this past North American summer corresponded with South American and Southern Hemisphere um, winter and influenza season. And so countries that have fairly robust public health surveillance systems, Australia is one great example, Chile uh, is another great example, saw very, very little influenza uh, during their flu season. So, you know, this gives us hope that if we in the United States uh, wear masks, aggressively, appropriately, take appropriate social distancing. It is possible that we could avoid a twindemic, I think is the, the phrase I've heard written down, of simultaneous influenza and COVID. It's worth remembering that the first reported death of COVID outside of China was a gentleman in the Philippines who had influenza and COVID co-infection, right? So clearly this is a, a combination we would like to avoid. Um, but I think if we do our part, we said we, as clinicians and as members of CHEST, if we, you know, model appropriate behavior for our colleagues, for our patients, uh, wear masks, use good eye protection ourselves in the hospital, cautious optimism, we'll say, cautious optimism. Thank you. Thank you. Steve, you have a question. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry, the two other panelists, I, I, I wanted to make a, a tiny comment and focus this at Ryan, because it was one of the questions I saw in the list that I found fascinating. And that question was about, about being on ships and submarines and passing, passing things around, understanding you can't, you can't talk Navy, you can talk about cruise ships if you desire. Um, but but the part of the government I work in too, that's called the ASPR, the Second Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, uh, views that what we're doing is health security. And that's because uh, literally, if you wanted to, if you wanted to attack the country and you developed a biological weapon, 
not saying that anyone has, mind you, but I'm saying that if you wanted to do that, a good way would be to put out something that infects and, and destabilizes both the military and or the government, even all the way up to president of the United States. And so, so we view it as security. And I, I just found it interesting. I personally, my personal thought is I think that probably our sailors ought to be among the first in line uh, to be vaccinated, understanding they're mostly young men and women and, and lower risk, but nevertheless, it, it's important. I'm just curious what you can tell us about that or say about that. Oh, well, you know, so standard caveats, uh, the following opinions of the opinions of myself do not represent the official opinions of the Department of Navy Department of Defense of the United States government. Yes. Um, but I am, a, I am a Navy captain. So um, I would say that I've actually been really pleased with how we've done as an organization. I'm speaking as a Naval officer, but of course, um, uh, the Department of Defense generally in our approach to COVID, because obviously the military is an organization that has to deal with the world as it is. Um, we have to send ships out to sea. We have to have the Marine Corps ready to go be the Marine Corps. We can't take a, take a break from it. So uh, here in San Diego, we have the Marine Corps Recruit Depot, which is one of the Marine Corps' two boot camps. Um, basically west of the Mississippi, recruits come to San Diego, east of the Mississippi, they go to Paris Island. And, um, and the Marine Corps leadership there, uh, and I was lucky enough to play a small part in the development of these plans, uh, puts, pay, puts new recruits into their tested upon arrival, then they're put into two weeks of what we call ROM or restriction of movement, but basically quarantine, um, and then tested again at the conclusion of that period before entering into training. And then the, the, tr the squads, the training companies are kept as bubbles, basically, bubbles moving around. That's not to say there haven't been cases of COVID among trainees, but what's interesting is that respiratory infections among military recruits is kind of the great bugaboo that we contend with um, at my hospital where, you know, recruit pneumonia is like my residents, when they, when they admit a recruit with pneumonia, the entire presentation is 19-year-old male recruit pneumonia, right? It is such a common presenting syndrome. Recruit pneumonia has poof, gone, because of these public health interventions that the Marines have implemented um, to reduce the risk of COVID, masking, cohorting, uh, and isolation. Um, to the point where, and again, this is, this is kind of, at this point, but one wonders, should we do this forever? Should we continue these public health interventions forever if they lead to streamlining of training and improved health of military recruits? Ships use a similar system before deployment of restriction of movement for two weeks prior to a crew embarking. So there's this whole notion of a, a crew being in a clean bubble when they embark on the ship. Um, and so far, it's been pretty successful. Obviously, the, the, the outbreak on the USS Theodore Roosevelt uh, aircraft carrier, mail just arrived, um, uh, aircraft carrier was well publicized. And there is actually a very nice CDC report on that for, uh, in MMWR, uh, written by CDC and Navy and some Army personnel as well, uh, that describes the intervention. So one of the interesting things about that, again, uh, is that sailors who were wearing masks 
got less COVID. It's very clear, very strong link. Um, and so, yeah, as far as priority of vaccination, I, I am uh, I'm in no real position to make any uh, specific comments about that. Obviously, you know, we, you know, the, the military tends to be pretty early in the line for vaccines, but I certainly think that we should not do that at the expense, you know, people of color, patients living in nursing homes, all of these other very high risk groups as well. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people who need this quickly. Good point. I would say sailors get my vote for being pretty far up there though. I appreciate that, sir. Thank you. Holly, you, you take care of a lot of patients with underlying lung disease, transplant, um, CF. So some of those clearly are comorbid risk factors. Some of the data, for example, in CF seems a bit more mixed. Is that because they were the, you know, the original socially distant population? Some, some comments on that. Yeah, it's really interesting. So we know pretty clearly that COPD, tobacco use, smoking seem to be risk factors for developing more severe COVID. But some things that we thought initially might be risk factors haven't really borne out so much. Asthma being one seems to be a little bit mixed, as well as CF seems to be a little bit mixed. And the question is, are those populations just really good at staying six feet apart? Are they really good at masking? Well, yes, they are, because they've been doing that throughout their whole life, especially in the CF, the CF cohort. Um, but there's also some question about whether the CFTR might have some uh, protective effect and whether the inhaled corticosteroids that people are on downregulates ACE and whether that has some interaction. So there really is just so much that we don't know to answer that question. Um, there was a very good session at Chesto about telehealth and implementing that into the clinics because it looks like you know, for the foreseeable future, COVID is going to be affecting our outpatient practice. And so how we are adapting to that in our clinics and how we are reassuring patients and, and doing the best things to keep them safe, I think is something that's important for us all to be evaluating in our practices. And there are definitely some strategies that we can take to be more successful than others. But one thing I thought was very interesting uh, from that session specifically was the number of people who have a smart device in surveys, even amongst people of color, even across socioeconomic status, it's more than 78, 80, 85% of people have a smart device. And so um, we should really be offering those services to patients when it's convenient for them. And especially since CMS has, uh, you know, lifted the restrictions on telehealth going through the end of the year, that's something that we should really be adapting, I think, into our, in our practices. Great, thanks. Mangala, can you talk a little bit about your um, approach now to the manage management of mechanical ventilation? And there was actually a very specific question on driving pressure even that came in um, in, in, the pre, in, in the people who signed up for the uh, webinar. Yeah, absolutely. We, from the beginning, have been using ARDSnet best practices for our patients with COVID, and we are really still sticking to that very much. We are following driving pressures, following plateau pressures, using four to six cc's per kg ideal body weight um, tidal volumes, and we have been sticking to those best practices, lowering um, FiO2 as much as we possibly can, increasing respiratory rate to increase minute ventilation. Um, and we're following... Um, blood gases, obviously, and we're titrating the ventilator as we can. So the question that came up in the chat was, um, 
do you tolerate hypercapnia, uh, you know, uh, permissive hypercapnia in order to decrease driving pressures? And absolutely, yes, we do do that. We've been doing that um, for a long time. And we do that for these patients as well. And to what pH do you go to was the question. Um, and I think our standard is if we get below 7.2, we start to get a little bit uh, unhappy with those numbers and, and try to, to fix that as much as we can. Um, we did a lot of uh, VV ECMO for our patients during March and April when we, we had patients who got to the point where we had done everything best practice wise and we were hurting them now with the ventilator and they were otherwise good candidates for VV ECMO. We were putting those patients on and our mortality rates from our VV ECMO program were pretty good. Just very long ECMO runs, very long ICU stays, a lot of sedation. Um, so it took a long time to get them off and that was uh, that can be troublesome when you have the number of patients that we were seeing at that time. So uh, it was a lot, it was very resource intensive one-to-one uh, -one nursing and we had perfusion involved. So it's not something that is doable, I think everywhere, but there are centers of excellence in most cities where you can be uh, sending your patients. But ARDSNET best practices, absolutely. Um, and in terms, there's a lot of discussion about low or high PEEP. And I think that's really patient dependent. If we were hypoxemic on, good settings, we would go up on the PEEP um, and make sure that we weren't hurting that RV and continuing to monitor the RV to make sure that, that, that there was not negative effects on that. But um, I think the one unique thing with COVID that we hadn't seen in a long time is the number of pneumomediastinums and pneumothoraces. I don't really have a good explanation for why that was, but um, it wasn't even necessarily in patients who were intubated. We were seeing it in patients who were on oxygen, patients who were just had worker breathing. Um, so uh, that was something sort of unique and different about COVID that uh, was different than other ARDS. But otherwise, we were doing ARGINET best practices the whole time. Yes. Steve, anything to add there? No, I just find it fascinating. This is the the second time, Mangala, that I that I've heard you say that about the pneumomediastinum, and I've heard other people say, and we just haven't seen that ourselves so much. Interesting. I think it's fascinating how how this thing does seem to somehow change as it moves across the country. And, and of course, what we have where I live is it comes from the left coast and the right coast, and and we. I, I'm not sure whether what we have is the same as either side or both. It's interesting. It's fascinating. There is a question, um, Stephanie, just about uh, early trach versus extubation, yeah. the VV ECMOs, and I can address that quickly. Sure. Um, these patients, most of them did get trachs. They were not early at all. They were late trachs. They were somewhere between three and four or five weeks. Um, and uh, if we could extubate, we obviously did, but they, they usually took a long time to get better. So they ended up the VV ECMO patients being tricks, but later on. Did you do anything different differently with your chest tube insertion? No, we did not. We usually use very small pneumothorax sized tubes um, and, uh, um, so, you know, not big French tubes and uh, that took care of the problem. Um, but uh, yeah, someone in the chat is saying that these patients take high tidal volumes and spontaneous breathing when that may be the cause of it. And that's what we thought as well, that it was just the work of breathing and big tidal volumes and swings of pleural pressures that were causing it. And regular PPE for your chest tube insertions, nothing different? Nothing different, yes. Right. And uh, 
Someone else in the chat is saying that they've seen a lot of pneumomediastinums as well. So uh, interesting. Um, I'll hand it back. Neha, I, I definitely don't want to end without, I know we have a little more time, but, but you have an interest, of course, in wellness. We all, we all do, but I know that that's something you've been quite interested in. Could you expand a little bit on, on some of the techniques that you have used in your healthcare system? Absolutely. Uh, I think in terms of wellness, we've been fortunate that even before the pandemic across the country, several major medical societies and different subspecialties really came together to focus on this issue of burnout in, in the uh, healthcare field. And specifically looking at this uh, on the conversations on social media using that hashtag ICU burnout and what were the themes that were emerging there and how can we prevent that? So most hospitals in the United States already had some really good pre-existing resources or at least some thought and conversation around it um, to the extent that I know GME offices have uh, have a mandate that you have to have at every department appoint a wellness uh, a representative. Um, we, for our health system, have a chief wellness officer and uh, in terms of coordinating the responses across the different departments, I think uh, making sure that uh, technology is being used appropriately that all those principles of communication during crisis, what does our frontline team need at this moment in time, making sure that communication is really transparent and, and accurate and the acknowledgement of, okay, we don't know this, but we'll figure it out. I think that was a key component of wellness, that reassurance that yes, we're going to, we're going to come out of this and this is our plan for the immediate future. We're keeping keeping our hands on the pulse of this rapidly evolving pandemic. So I think a lot of hospitals and health systems across the United States and in different parts of the world did a really good job of that. For us specifically, I thought our health system did a phenomenal job of quickly putting together this task force uh, and then later evolved into this office of resilience and, and wellness promotion. Um, and then again, leveraging technology for providing compassionate care to all the frontline providers. There was this wellness hub that was created, an app that all of us could sign up for. And there are different resources that you could uh, you could use by way of that app. Another really cool initiative was these recharge rooms, essentially a place where you could take that moment to unpack and process everything that's happened, even if you didn't have the time to do it. So just taking those few moments and making sure that everybody was still wearing masks while you went into the room, but you could at least take a, take a moment there. We did some wellness um, sessions using Zoom including our spiritual care team, uh, just organizing some meetings where people could just talk through what, what they were going uh, going through or verbalize their fears and, and come up with some strategies for how to channel those fears appropriately. And perhaps, you know, this is, this is, this may be a little underrated, but free food. I think that really fed everybody's souls and getting all the all these food donations from uh, the community and several of our uh, team members coordinated these food donations. I thought that was uh, incredible. But all in all, just like everything else, because we had some good practices in place before the pandemic, then you can just magnify those good practices and then adapt and fine tune them for the needs 
needs of your uh, team at that moment in time. So, and I think Chess did a phenomenal job. We had uh, several webinars on on wellness. Uh, the Chess meeting had a bunch of content on wellness. So, I think there was no doubt that everybody realizes this is an important component of doing everything that we do. Thank you, Mangal and Steve. A couple of questions regarding. Um, our change in practice and when to intubate the use of non-invasive uh, non ventilation, high flow nasal canyon. Yeah. You first, Mangala, go ahead. No, I was going to say you first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, then, then what I will say is that, that we have morphed, and I think other people have morphed during the course of this. There was a time early on, as Mangala was alluding to, when when there were theories about whether this is something different from ARDS or, or something new or strange. And, and I think we have learned that actually it isn't what we, what we get to see is the evolution of ARDS in a way that we haven't always right. gotten to witness the evolution of ARDS. Um, we have changed our approach. And I think this is fairly in line with pretty much everyone that instead of uh, the first person that I intubated with COVID, we went directly from a six liter nasal cannula to being intubated. And we now understand that that, that isn't necessary. There are plenty of stages in between and the stages do consist of both high flow nasal cannula, heated high flow nasal cannula device um, uh, BiPAP type devices and all the way to intubation. And we, we do know that some people stop at that level and don't need to go farther. And we were concerned also early on. I think one of the reasons that we intubated people early is we were concerned about spreading the virus both to ourselves and to others in the room during the intubation. And we now understand that with good PPE, um, good PPE for one thing, that that is less of a problem and that perhaps there is less aerosol spread from uh, heated high flow nasal cannula than what we thought might happen uh, earlier on in the illness. So, so we are worried less about transmission of the virus now. So, so basically um, our philosophy at this point, and I think this matches up, Mangala, you'll, you'll say whether it does or not, but I think our philosophy is, is, is as long as you can oxygenate a person well, and they are not exhibiting signs of failure of their own ability to pump the air in and out, then you can take your time working your way through these steps. Uh, and it is when people show begin to show evidence that their ventilatory efforts are about to fail, um, that they need intubation. And that's um, fairly similar, I think, to just almost anyone. I totally agree. The one thing I would add is there is some data that we're seeing preliminarily that patients who get intubated in their first RRT when they're starting to get into trouble uh, do better than the ones who go to their third or fourth RRT. And as they get sicker and we wait longer, yeah. those patients don't do as well. So there's some sweet spot in between where we don't intubate too early and we don't wait till they're in extremis and working very hard with high pleural swings um, to intubate. And I think uh, that's gonna be different for every patient. Um, so yes, I totally agree with everything else that you yeah. said. Thank you. 
Ryan, a few questions regarding what we're starting to see now that someone who stays positive on their PCR for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, but with resolution of, of symptoms, what do we do? Well, I mean, the short answer is stop checking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and our infection control would say that here. <laughs> yeah. So, so the CDC has put out good guidelines, and this is based on a, a lot of look at kind of the kinetics of viral cultures over time, which is obviously not a routinely performed clinical test. Um, the problem with PCR is that, uh, you know, it doesn't distinguish between viable and replication incompetent virus. So we're basically, these persistently positive PCRs, as far as we can tell, in the majority of patients, uh, essentially seem to be detecting like chunks of virus cadaver. And so the current guidelines are now for kind of the typical patient with COVID, uh, assuming that they have clinically improved, are free of fever, are on the mend. Uh, this is separating out, of course, the issues of long COVID. This is not requiring someone to be totally back to baseline, but clearly improving in afebrile. Uh, 10 days out from symptom onset, we can generally relax infection control precautions in those patients. In the critically ill and the mechanically ventilated and the immunoincompetent, we would extend that out to 20 days. Um, and I think that is broadly speaking the correct thing to do. How we apply that to a given hospitalized patient, the person who's been on the vent for 23 days, and how you institutionally manage the liberation from those precautions, I think is a the data would support a 20-day time in the penalty box and then hopefully being able to light, lift some of those fully appreciating that every institution is gonna have its own individual level of comfort. And, and not just the organization, but the staff, right? Making sure that nurses, uh, physician colleagues, and others are, are comfortable with that decision. That's, that's the thing I've seen at other hospitals where socialization to make people comfortable with that idea. Um, but I think for the great majority of patients, 10 days or 20 days, depending on severity of illness and underlying immune status. And, and I do not recommend repeat PCR-based testing for someone who already has a diagnosis of COVID. Thank you. There are a couple questions regarding um, fibrosis after after severe COVID infection. Um, what is the incidence? I think I think it's probably too early to to determine that. I think we know based on some of the lung transplants that have been done and and what the explants look like that that there certainly is a component of irreversible end stage lung disease. But does anyone else want to add more to that? I, I will just add that I think over the, over the 30 years of my career, it's become clear that much of the fibrosis and in fact, much of the severe ARDS that, that appeared for various different reasons, whether it was caused by sepsis, trauma, you name it, that much of that was us. Uh, and much of it was volutrauma slash barotrauma slash shear forces and the various things that we did with machines wound people up with it. And I think that's that particular component of it is going to remain true of COVID. That, and, and this isn't to say anyone's doing anything wrong, but sometimes, sometimes the way ventilation goes is just not the right way. And so is this COVID induced, is this antibodies to COVID, cellular immunity to COVID that induces 
this or is this cellular and humoral immunity um, to, to the mechanical forces that must be applied that wind you up with fibrosis? And I don't, I don't think we know the answer to that just yet. Any other comments on that? No, okay. Well, I think I think we're drawing to the end of end of our hour. I don't know if there was were any. Um, oh, Ryan answered something. That you, um, I didn't know if there were any other uh, kind of parting words from anybody. I really appreciate everyone taking the time and and bringing their expertise to the group and trying to summarize what they learned and heard at, at Chess Twenty Twenty. And, and thanks to Chess for, for allowing us to put this on. My parting word is I feel smarter after listening to these guys than I was an hour ago. So thank you. Same here. Thank outfit, you all so much. Yes. Thank you. Bye. The outlook's going to be really positive. So we just got to stay stay uh, on top of everything that's happening. The la These last two months are sort of like the last leg of a marathon. Like Ryan said, there are a whole bunch of good vaccines that are on the horizon. We know a lot of the social distancing, the masking, the public health efforts work. So we shouldn't shouldn't get tired of that at this point in time. We're so close to really beating the virus. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all for Bye. the opportunity. Bye. Bye. Thank you.